Each week, in partnership with the GI Museum in Gautier, we interview veterans of the military about their experiences abroad. We'll air these stories unedited and unchanged. These heroes were there on the front lines and lived through unspeakable horrors to tell us their story. And now, we sit down with a true hero. Hello and welcome to another edition of Local Heroes, brought to you by WKFK-TV7 in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and the GI Museum in Gautier. Tonight, we have a real special guest. He needs no introduction to most of you people in Jackson County, but in case you don't know him, and I don't think there's anybody that, is, that doesn't know this man, is Manley Barton, District 1 Supervisor and President of our Board of Supervisors. Manley, thank you for being here on the show. Well, I appreciate you uh, having me. Well, let's get started, Manley, and, and uh, let's talk about how you got into the military in about 1969. I had, uh, uh, of course, there was no lottery at the time when I got drafted, and uh, uh, I had a friend who had gotten a draft notice about the same time I got a draft notice, uh, and he was going a little ahead of me, and uh, we decided to go together, so I went and joined. Uh, so that he and I could go in at the same time. And so I went in and around the end of February 1st of March of 69. And from there you uh, were processed and you went to basic training? Went to basic training at Fort Polk, uh, Louisiana. Um, it's pretty cold in Louisiana on 1st of March. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was an interesting, uh, that was an interesting experience. Uh, probably the best shape I've ever been in my life when I came out of there. Uh, uh, you know, when you come out of basic training, especially during the Vietnam War, was the concern was being infantry. Uh, but I, in some ways, I was very fortunate. Uh, when I finished basic training, I got assigned to quartermaster school at Fort Lee, Virginia, and went there. Spent ten weeks at Fort Lee, Virginia, and uh, came out of there with a with a an MOS, a, a, a job title of uh, petroleum storage specialist. And uh, so that was, I worked, learned how to work in a kind of like a petroleum tank farm. And uh, so that's kind of how I got my start. And then immediately I, I got uh, 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 my orders to Vietnam. And uh, in fact, it was funny that the classes at, 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 uh, at Fort Lee, it was pretty obvious, every week there was a class that graduated. And one week would the class would go the whole class would go to Vietnam and the next week the whole class would go somewhere else we had figured it out by the, we were about the fourth or fifth week by the tenth week we were all going to go somewhere else we were kind of happy and about two or three weeks before we finished the, the the cycle started changing instead of everybody going to one place or the other they started splitting the classes and so when it came to our class about half the class went to Vietnam and about half the class went to other places and I was one of the ones that uh, went to Vietnam. Anything memorable about BASIC that, uh, other than um, how in shape you were, the training? Or? It was, uh, uh, I made uh, a lot of friends uh, during BASIC training, a few of which I, I ran into later in, in life and later in Vietnam in particular. Uh, <clears throat> uh, very demanding. Uh, I look back on it, it you know, it, it would be um, difficult for someone a little older uh, to probably uh, 
to, to put up with some of the stuff that we put up with. But, of course, we didn't know any better. I was 19, 20 years old. And so, uh, uh, but it was, it was very challenging, obviously. And, uh, but I look back on it, and I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't take anything for having gone through it. And um, it was something that uh, I probably wouldn't want to do again. But, uh, but there was, you know, there was a lot of the same harassments that everybody hears, you know, about, you know, yeah. the, the, the footlocker routines at oh, 2 yeah. o'clock in the morning and, you know, burying a cigarette butt and, you know, those kind of things that, that uh, probably everybody's been through basic training and has either seen or participated in. Uh, long marches, long runs, uh, uh, early in the morning, late at night. Uh, but but here again, met a lot of really good people too, and inc including the people that were uh, assigned to train us. You know, uh, uh, we had several changes uh, at like squad leader and and so forth during the uh, the cycle, and and somewhere I I couldn't I don't remember exactly how far over in to the cycle it was, but I ended up being a squad leader. I wasn't to begin with, uh, but near the end. Uh, maybe halfway through or so, uh, I had an opportunity to be a squad leader for a while, and I stayed squad leader till we graduated. So, did, did but that, that was interesting, and, and, and immediately had to take on some responsibility and so forth. Did that training uh, help you in what you're doing today, in your leadership role? That I, probably so. I, I think so. Uh, it, it, it forced me at a very early age, and especially uh, later, uh, you know, say a year after that, when I was in Vietnam, um, it, you know, those kind of roles that you took on, um, you were given a task or given a job and uh, expected to to carry it out, and uh, and so uh, I, I think there's something to be said for. I mean, I look back on it and I think I, I just I. It's hard for me to believe at this point in my life, looking back, as to how young I was, um, and in in these situations, to think that somebody actually gave me that, <laughs> that responsibility uh, when I was that young, and but they did, and uh, and they expected me to do it, and they expected the other people who took on similar tasks to do the same thing, and so, but I but I think you're right. I think. Having had that experience, having had those responsibilities early, and uh, uh, I think through those, I think it helps you through a lot of things you do in your life to be more, maybe more confident, more outspoken if you need to be. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the training and, and all of the stuff that, that the experiences that I had uh, probably all influenced the person I became. So you get through basic, and did you have a little time off before they shipped you out? Did you get to come No, the first, uh, the first airplane I ever got on <clears throat> was when I went to Fort Lee, Virginia, from Louisiana. They took us from, the, uh, from Fort Polk, put us on a bus, carried us up to an airport somewhere. I couldn't tell you where we went. And we got on an airline or an airplane, and um, they flew us to somewhere in Virginia, Richmond, I guess, in that area. And they picked us up in a bus and carried us to Fort Lee, and uh, that was the first plane ride I, I was ever on. And uh, uh, so then I spent ten weeks at Fort Lee. And then you got out of the, your your AIT at Fort Lee, and 
no time between <laughs> Fort Lee and, and Vietnam. You went straight to Vietnam. No, I had 30 days. 30 days. Uh, when, I, when I had my orders uh, from Fort Lee, I had a 30-day uh, uh, leave, and so I came home, actually drove home and uh, from Fort Lee and uh, spent 30 days at home. Uh, uh, then flew uh, from Mobile. Uh, we, in fact, it was kind of interesting. We went to Mobile, got on the plane in Mobile, and flew to New Orleans. Had to change planes in New Orleans. So it was about a 15, 20-minute ride to New Orleans and get back off the plane. And, and then had a several-hour layover. And while I was waiting, uh, flying into Oakland, uh, Army, uh, Oakland Airport, going to the Oakland Army Base, uh, two other people came in uh, that I knew that were going the same time I was. And we actually flew on the same plane to, uh, to Oakland together that were also going to Vietnam. See, and you get to Oakland after your 30-day leave, and you're there, you probably get, did you get your jungle fatigues there, or did you? No, no, no. We, we had the, uh, and I forget exactly, I had, it seemed like it was khakis, best I remember, but, uh, but we um, had, what we had had been issued in, in AIT, and, uh, and was there for, I think we came in that night, uh, had to report in, before 11 o'clock or something that night, got reported in. We're there for the, maybe the next day, then and then we shipped out, I think, the day after, where we took a flight out the next day going to Vietnam. Went through Hawaii, through Guam. And Standard route. Standard route, yeah. And you landed in Vietnam at? Uh, Benoit. Benoit. And uh, went to the uh, 90th Replacement Center, uh, best I remember, and uh, uh, got in that late that afternoon and, and ate, uh, got, got us a place to stay that night, or, or a cot, and uh, ate, uh, had a little free time that night, and was told to report out uh, the next morning, uh, fall out, they were going to have a big uh, reporting. And so we did that, <coughs> and they actually... Uh, had us all out in a field, and I, I don't remember how many people there were there, but it was several hundred. It, it was it was not probably in the thousands, but it was several hundred of us. And um, they just started calling names. Said, um, okay, when I call your name, had a loudspeaker and had several banners around. First Cav banner, uh, big red one, 101st Cavalry Division and said, um, when I call your name, you go to the banner that I call. You know? And so uh, he said, okay, everybody that I'm fixing to call, you need to go to the 101st Airborne. So he called a bunch of names. Well, when he got to the first cab, we were standing back in the back kind of talking, you know how people are doing. He said, okay, the next group is uh, First Cavalry Division. And um, show you how little I knew about the Army. Uh, mine was, was the very first name called. And I almost missed it. You know, he says first, and he says, Barton, Manley, G. And I said, did he call my name? And they were all, yeah, I think so. It starts with a B. I think so. <laughs> and, 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 and I said, first cavalry division. I said, that, that, that must be a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so I get over, so I walked over there and, and uh, told the sergeant who I was. He checked me off his list, and I said, are we sure that's right? He said, son, the Army doesn't make mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> he said, go over there instead. So, um, so then we actually went through a, 
uh, a three-day, uh, what they call charm school in Vietnam. And um, had to requalify. qualify um, We'd actually qualified on M14s in basic training. I'd never shot an M16. Uh, but that's where we were issued weapons and, and this type of thing. I got an issued an M16. We had to qualify on it. Also qualified on a 50. I mean on a uh, M60. And uh, so, uh, and that was an interesting. I'd never shot a machine gun. And uh, so, uh, but then after three days, uh, all we knew at that point was that we were in the first cab. We didn't know what unit we were going to. And then uh, at the end of that three days, we got our orders for the units. And, uh, and I got assigned to the 227th Assault Helicopter Battalion. We're going to have to stop you on that little note right there, Mandy, because we're going to have to take a break. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more of this interesting story with Manly Barton. Welcome back to Local Heroes here on WKFK-TV7 in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Tonight our special guest is Mr. Manley Barton. And uh, Manley, before we went to the break, we had just gotten you to Vietnam and you were out there in the middle of that field and you'd just been assigned to the 1st <coughs> Cavalry Division. We, uh, uh, so I ended up in the 1st Cavalry Division, didn't know exactly where I was going and uh, uh, went, ended up at a three-day short kind of an abbreviated training session uh, orientation into Vietnam I guess is one way of putting it and uh, but it was there we, we were uh, issued rifles and had to qualify uh, we had actually qualified in, in basic training on M14s and we were assigned, we were given M16s in Vietnam and we also had to qualify with the M60 machine gun and so uh, after the three days of, of that training, I was assigned to the 227th Assault uh, Helicopter Battalion. Uh, first helicopter ride I, I was in was when they picked me up from the school to carry me to battalion headquarters at Phu Vinh, which was about an hour north of there. Uh, the next morning, the helicopter landed and picked myself up and a couple of others that had been assigned to that battalion. And so that was a little a little scary and a little thrilling at the same time uh, to get on the helicopter and then fly and and then kind of flying across the countryside. It was, it, you know, most of the countryside, to be honest with you, was very pretty. And helicopter was flying, I don't know how fast at that point, but it was uh, not very high off the ground. We were, we were kind of low-level flying. And um, so I, that was my kind of introduction to helicopters. But I ended up in a helicopter battalion uh, and actually over the course of the year flew uh, a lot. <laughs> then, where, then, what, <laughs> then what happened? Where did you go from well, there? Well, my initial assignment um, was, I, I guess, kind of interesting in the sense that when I got there, the battalion commander interviewed the three of us that came in. Uh, and when he got to me, he wanted to know what I had been trained for. My, my uh, job that I'd been trained for in quartermaster school was petroleum storage specialist. So he asked me to kind of explain a little bit about what that was. And when I was talking about I was trained to work in a tank farm and this type of stuff, he said, in fact, he kind of looked out the window and he said, we don't, as you can see, we don't have a tank farm here. <laughs> and uh, that didn't really make me feel real good. And uh, I said, uh, I said, okay. And he said, but, did he, but then he asked me some other questions. He asked me, if, you know, he looked at my records and see, saw that I had done okay on the M60 uh, 
qualifying in, in the little charm school. And, but then he asked me in, in the school that I had attended, had we refueled any helicopters and those types of things? And I told him we had. And, um, and so he said, and, when he, and even then he said something about that, well, you know, we're, we're thinking about doing some things with refueling and so forth, so we may be able to utilize you a little better. But my initial assignment was to the headquarters company uh, working, I really, in, in, I was assigned to supply, but as kind of a backup door gunner uh, in the, uh, in the uh, headquarters company. Uh, but I actually really never did that, uh, never had to do it, uh, because within a few weeks, they called me back in and said they were going to start uh, uh, refueling and rearming um, uh, setting up these remote rearming and refueling uh, places. And so I was um, sometime probably in the latter part of, uh, I got there 1st of August, so this was probably in uh, maybe the 1st of September or so. Uh, I was sent to a special forces camp at Loch Ninn um, and then spent the next three months there uh, manning one of these uh, remote uh, refueling places and, uh, and and that was interesting uh, being around the special forces people every day and I stayed in the sports special forces camp slept there ate there and really got to know them fairly well and uh, kind of a uh, unique group of people yes they are and uh, but but at the same time there was a village there locked in and we knew a lot of the got to know a lot of the kids and and so forth they came up every day to help they'd be around you all the time and they were always wanting something you know, so we'd, we had plenty of sea rations and those kind of things. So we would give the kids uh, food and, and treats and different things. And so uh, I had, a, uh, uh, in, in many ways, had a lot of fun with the kids in particular because we, we got to know them fairly well. Describe for the, <coughs> the, the viewers exactly what your job entailed as far as refueling helicopters. And, and, and you didn't refuel them from a tank <laughs> form, obviously. What were you refueling the helicopters from? You give us a little... Uh, well, idea about that. we had what they call 500-gallon blivets, uh, bladders, uh, and so we had a, just a real small pump that you could actually pick up and run with. I mean, it, they didn't weigh very much. had a small gasoline engine on it, and, uh, and, and so we had a hose that we would suck the, the fuel out of these blivets, uh, 500 gallons at a time, uh, pump it through the small pump, and then the outside you'd have a small hose that you could put it into the uh, helicopters. And, and these blivets were designed so that they could be taken into small places and, and even on an emergency basis. In fact, we went many times to where we would go uh, be lifted into a place and drop down uh, to a small landing zone or whatever uh, to refuel one helicopter that was coming in. And uh, we'd be there and, and the helicopter would come in, we'd refuel them. Then we would actually get on the helicopter and leave with them. I mean, the only purpose for us being there was to refuel that one helicopter. Many times it was sky cranes hauling very heavy loads where they didn't have enough fuel to go from one base to the other. They had to refuel somewhere in the middle where there was no, no LZs, no uh, landing zones or fire support bases uh, for them to refuel. We'd set up an emergency one in the field. Uh, but that's basically what we did at the Special Forces camps also. But we had a lot more of those blivets. We, we got supplied almost every day. Uh, by division with additional blivets, and then we would use those, and they'd come in so off, every so often, take the empties and 
bring them back full. So. Yeah, and the blivets were made out of rubber. And they would sling load them in under they, the That's under right. The they would sling load them in. Uh, uh, a Huey uh, could, it, it was big enough to haul uh, one or two of them. So it didn't have to be a Chinook or some very large helicopter. They could bring us, uh, you know, a thousand gallons pretty easily uh, that we could uh, then use to fuel other helicopters. But we also rearmed the gunships. So we, we had uh, 40 millimeter belted uh, ammo and uh, minigun ammo uh, and, and even belted uh, uh, am ammo for like M60 machine guns and those kinds of things. So that when crews came in, anything they needed uh, on that ship, whether it was a gunship or whether it was a Huey or something like that, we could uh, supply them with uh, with ammunition or fuel. As a matter, with all that fuel out there, I'm sure that was a target at times. Yeah, it was. It uh, we uh, we uh, every once in a while we would get mortar rounds or, or sometimes sniper fire, but not, but really not very often on the sniper fire. Uh, had a lot of uh, 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 of our fuel would come up missing at night because this was all obviously outside the wire. So uh, we would keep uh, usually not very much, but we would keep maybe 55 gallons of MoGas just to run our pumps, uh, uh, regular gasoline, uh, as opposed to the jet fuel. And uh, of course, the uh, the people in the village used the uh, the they were always looking for gasoline for. Uh, their motor scooters and their cars and everything else. So regular gasoline was hard to keep. If you kept it out there, they would steal it uh, pretty quick. So we had to be very creative to uh, either hide it or, or at least not, or maybe not leave it out there. So that was, that was some of the interesting things that would happen to us. But, uh, but we would move around. We, we spent, uh, I spent uh, five months at Loch Ninn, spent three months at another special forces camp called Duke Fong. Uh, but then... From there, we would go, such as I explained a while ago, if they had something we needed to, to leave there and go set up an emergency point someplace else for a couple of days or maybe even for one day, we would do that. And uh, we did that uh, quite a bit. How many people would do that? You, you, you say we. Were there, how, um, many, how many individuals? Probably, uh, over the course of the year that I was there, we had as many as just myself, myself and maybe one or two others. I think the most we ever had in our little group was during uh, probably uh, May of 70 when Nixon sent the troops into Cambodia. Uh, we were set up at Loch Ninh. That's what That was actually the jumping off point to go into Cambodia. And several of us went into Cambodia, including myself, uh, spent about a month in Cambodia, I guess. and then But then several was there. We had probably five or six at that point. That was probably the most we ever had assigned to the group. So they're taking you out on a remote location, sometimes you, yourself, and just another guy. Oh, yeah. Did you feel a little lonely? More than once. <laughs> More than once. Uh, most of the time, they would put us at a place where there were some other people. But occasionally, you know, uh, it was you'd be by yourself. Manly, unfortunately, we're out of time for this show, but... We promise that we're going to continue this story on the next episode of Local Heroes on WKFK TV7 in Pascagoula. Please, you don't want to miss this one.
Each week, in partnership with the GI Museum in Gautier, we interview veterans of the military about their experiences abroad. We'll air these stories unedited and unchanged. These heroes were there on the front lines and lived through unspeakable horrors to tell us their story. And now, we sit down with a true hero. Hello and welcome to Local Heroes here on WKFK TV 7 and the GI Museum in Gautier, Mississippi. In our last episode, we were talking to Manly Barton. And if you don't know Manly, I'll tell you what he is in Jackson County. He's our District 1 Supervisor and he's President of our Board of Supervisors. Welcome back to the second episode, Manly. Well, we had you, taken Doug. you through basic training and you'd been to Fort Lee, Virginia and you'd gotten some training in... Uh, <laughs> fuel storage, and uh, you you were in Vietnam, and you were telling us about uh, your job in Vietnam, which was taking fuel oblivious out to these remote locations and refueling helicopters. And there was one particular time when you were out on a refueling mission that something happened to you. I had been at a special forces camp called Duke Fong, and, and uh, the 1st Cavalry Division was reestablishing um, uh, an area north of Duke Fong, in the, in the, really the, in the southern part of the Central Highlands. And they had established a fire support base there uh, where an, uh, an old Special Forces camp had been at one time. There was actually part of a, of a runway there. Uh, and we went up, uh, or I did, uh, to establish a, really an emergency refueling operation there just to support that, establishing that fire support base. So we were we came in probably the second day that the infantry was there to uh, to get it established so we could refuel gunships and uh, uh, medevac ships or anybody that needed fuel there. And uh, so we did that. And the first night we were there, we were really getting everything established, and, and it was kind of quiet. Uh, the second day, uh, we had quite a bit of activity there, uh, but then late that second day we were there, we started uh, had uh, started taking some sniper fire. Then took uh, probably several hours worth of uh, mortar fire, um, and then probably late that night, sometime around midnight or so, had a a pretty good probe uh, where they tried to break through one side of the compound. Uh, this was not much of a compound, I might add. It was. Uh, Mostly just uh, some Constantina wire in a, in a big circle. Uh, had a few sandbags, and we'd built a few bunkers, and uh, small bunkers, uh, but not, uh, not, not big bunkers by any means. Um, and then got, really got through the night okay. Uh, there was some uh, little activity that night. There were several people got wounded, and medevac ships came in and so forth. Um, but the next morning, uh, we... Uh, actually went uh, outside of, of the little compound area down a couple hundred yards to check our supplies, our fuel blivets, and the, of course the fuel blivets are rubber, and sometimes they get shot and they leak and so forth. And so um, we'd gone down to check that and check our ammo and so forth. Uh, had been down there for not, not very long, 15, 20 minutes, I guess, and I had actually turned around to walk back into the compound uh, to get something. I don't remember even what it was now. And I walked probably uh, 150 feet or so and uh, 
heard something, and I, as I turned, uh, a mortar hit uh, pretty close. And, uh, and I really kind of got what I call the side blast. I, it, it, it wasn't aimed at me. It was kind of aimed at the compound. And I got kind of the side blast and, and um, got knocked down and didn't have a shirt on. I, I guess that's one thing that I always remember was that when I kind of came to my senses uh, laying on the ground, I remember thinking that I had a lot of blood on me. And I, had, I could taste blood in my mouth and uh, didn't know it at the time, but two small pieces had actually gone through my cheek. And so I was bleeding on the inside of my mouth a little bit. Not much, but enough to taste blood. And, uh, but I didn't have a shirt on. And as I laid there, I, you know, I, I had 50 or 60 little bitty cuts here and there. And it's like, kind of like getting shot with birdshot or something, I guess. And, uh, but I remember thinking that uh, I didn't really feel any pain. And, uh, and I had a couple places on my arm that was bleeding pretty good, and, and I'm thinking, I'm dying. You know, I, I know I'm dying. And uh, uh, the first couple of people that got to me uh, tried to reassure me that I was okay, that I was going to be okay. I thought they were lying. Uh, they uh, put some bandages on me, and, you know, and uh, I, probably within about 20 minutes or so, Maybe it could have been a little longer than that, but but around in that time period, the medevac ship came in, and um, and and I remember on the medevac ship, uh, the medic, uh, you know, he checked me out pretty good, took the bandages off they had on, put new bandages on me, but then he assured me that I was going to be all right, and I thought he was lying, and uh, so it, it was an in that was an interesting ride, and then we they took me to Long Bend, uh, to the Long Bend Hospital, and. Uh, they put me on a cold steel bed in a in a kind of a large room that had a lot of other steel beds in it, and uh, and the thing I remember was it was so so cold in there, and uh, but it was uh, it was an interesting morning and and I was okay. I mean I was hurt, but I I wasn't hurt terribly and uh, uh, got 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 okay. Spent a, spent a couple of days there and then was on convalescent for a little while. But it was a, that was an interesting time. Yeah. And, of course, your dad, <coughs> and if people don't know who he is, and everybody in Jackson County knows who your dad is or was, uh, he got notified. Tell us the story about how your dad found out that you had been wounded in Vietnam. Well, and I don't know that I even knew this at the time, as far as the timing was concerned, or didn't realize that it was Easter weekend uh, when I got wounded. I actually got wounded on Saturday before Easter Sunday. And uh, my dad was at that time preaching at Van Cleve uh, Baptist. And the person who was delivering the, the telegram showed up at church prior to the 11 o'clock Easter Sunday service. And um, one of the men in the church uh, talked to him, found out what it was all about, found out that I was okay, that I wasn't dead, that it was just a wound. And... Um, and convinced him to wait till after church to give it to my dad. So my dad preached uh, Easter Sunday uh, service that morning, and when he went out of the back of the church to greet people at the end of the service, this guy was standing there w waiting w for him uh, with a telegram saying that I'd been wounded. So it was uh, uh, kind of a traumatic day for them too, I'm sure. Yeah, that was your Purple Heart. That was my Purple Heart, that's right. But I also know that uh, you've got a uh, bronze star. 
Uh, you want to relate uh, or give us a little bit of how you were you manage that one? Well, um, actually, it was the same day. The same day. Yeah. Uh, uh, from the timing standpoint, uh, a little earlier in the morning, before I got wounded, uh, uh, same morning, uh, we were, we came under attack. And, and probably a lot of people find themselves in this situation. Uh, at the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, just kind of, kind of got caught where uh, you didn't want to be when people started shooting at you. Um, uh, the, you know, we, I, I think most people who um, receive those kinds of awards, very few of them went into something like that looking for something like oh, that. Oh no, I don't think everybody <laughs> and, uh, and so I, you know, I think. I look back on it, and I've thought about this many, many times through the years. It's, I think anybody who was in the same situation at the same moment would have probably reacted the same way. I, I would like to think that. I think we reacted uh, based on uh, experience and training and everything else, and out of survival. I mean, that was that was part of. There were people shooting at us. So of course, yes. so it was. Uh, so it was a matter of of. Uh, we had there, there was a there was a ground attack and. Um, um, got caught um, outside the wire, and um, so we um, actually, in some ways, was in a good spot because uh, they were concentrating their fire on the uh, uh, on the compound, and we were actually uh, myself and one other guy was actually to the side of them, and then and caught them a little off guard, and uh, so when we started firing, we uh, you know, they retreated pretty quick. But, as you can well imagine, when we started firing, we had an awful lot of fire trained back on us pretty quick. And, uh, and, and we didn't have a whole lot of cover. And, uh, but, it was, it was, uh, but it was over with pretty quick, too. And so uh, uh, I was very fortunate to uh, come through that without a scratch, I might add. So uh, but that was, uh, but, I, but later I, I got a bronze star for Valor for that. Yes, with and the V device. I wanted right. to make sure everybody knew that one. Bronze Star with the V device, Valor. Yeah. And so, uh, but that was, uh, but that was interesting. I, I, uh, I appreciated them, you know, doing that, but uh, I, I really didn't expect it, to be honest with you. Most GIs don't expect any decorations, man. You know that. Folks, we're going to have to take a short break here. But we'll be right back with more of this story from Manly Barton. Welcome back to Local Heroes here on WKFK TV 7. And we're talking to Mr. Manly Barton. Manly, we'd left you off and in our last segment, and you had just received, you've been awarded the Bronze Star with a V device. But if you look at your shadow box, there's another one in there. Could you tell us about that one? Well, you know, the Bronze Star can be awarded for uh, valor or heroism or whatever, but it can also be awarded for meritorious service. Uh, and so the other Bronze Star that I received was, that's what it was for. It was uh, uh, for meritorious service. And 
really, I think, had more to do with my battalion commander trying to reward me for uh, what he considered to be a good job, you know, doing the uh, the uh, refueling operations that uh, that I'd been involved in uh, pretty much the whole year that I was in Vietnam. And you also were awarded the Army Commendation Medal, right? And and for similar reasons, it was uh, for meritorious service, uh, but for other things other than maybe the the refueling operation. But I think that the Bronze Star had more to do with the with the refueling operation and those uh, missions that I went on for the refueling than it did anything else. And and the Army Commendation Medal was uh, maybe for maybe kind of overall doing a good job, maybe, I guess. And then you were awarded the Air Medal. Right. I, I was um, uh, assigned to an aviation battalion and actually did a lot of flying. Uh, and uh, they had a policy of, of you could be awarded an Air Medal if you had um, uh, more than 25 combat flying hours. And, and they kept logs, and, and they knew when you flew and when you didn't fly, and, and how the hours for that particular helicopter, your flight time was logged as either combat hours or non-combat hours. So in the year that I was there, I accumulated more than 25 combat hours. And so that's the reason I was awarded the Air Medal. And, uh, and I want to also <coughs> mention you were, you, you were awarded the National Defense, and you were awarded the Vietnam Service, and you were awarded the Vietnam Service with the 60 bar on the, the medal also. But here's a young man from Jackson County, Mississippi. On his third plane ride, he goes to Vietnam. First time he ever rides in a helicopter is in Vietnam, and you've just told us about you've ridden a lot in helicopters. Did you ever get where you enjoyed it or liked it or looked forward to it? Well, I got used to it. You got used uh, to it. And, and actually, I enjoyed flying. Uh, I really did. Uh, uh, certainly uh, flew uh, sometimes when it was very nerve-wracking. Um, but actually, I guess I, I enjoyed it enough that when I came home from Vietnam, I decided I wanted to get a pilot's license and fly some here. And so... Uh, so I did that in the early 70s uh, and uh, went through and did my 40 hours and, you know, fixed wing, not, not helicopter. But I, but I was actually working with some folks at the time that, uh, that flew and had pilot's license, and so I flew some with them. So I did that, but like a lot of things, I kind of lost interest in, in it just in a little while. Uh, but, uh, but I was young, and I wanted to do it, and yeah, so it, it was, some of it was real fun. And some of the pilots we flew in, in with in Vietnam um, were amazing. They really were. I mean, we had some pilots that were just unbelievable where they could put, put a helicopter or, or get it out of. And um, so, uh, so sometimes it could be uh, real exhilarating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, somebody said something one time about, uh, you know, flying was, uh, you know, hours and hours of boredom interrupted by sheer terror. <laughs> Yes. Moments of sure terror. Yes. Uh, but yeah, it could be, it could get exciting real quick. Now, when you learned how to refuel helicopters, I'm sure there was a procedure that the Army taught you. And could you tell us what that procedure was? Well, it's just kind of funny uh, because uh, when I was in AIT, they. We, we refueled a couple of helicopters, and, and when we did, they went through about a 15, 20-minute procedure 
just to get to the point where you'd start refueling it. You shut the helicopter down, nobody approached it until all the blades had stopped and all the engines were down, and then you'd go up and you'd make sure the grounds were all in place before you ever even started a pump or started fueling it or anything. And then you certainly didn't crank the helicopter up until everything was finished and disconnected and everybody had backed away from it. Well, in Vietnam it didn't work that way. When those helicopters came in and landed, they wanted fuel right that moment. So nobody shut an engine down. And, uh, but it was, uh, it, and that was, uh, you know, the first time I, I, I mean, I figured out pretty quick they weren't going to do it the way they did it in AIT. <laughs> but, uh, but my introduction was when the first guy landed, and it was pretty obvious he was not going to shut that helicopter down before I refueled him. And, uh, but that was kind of funny, I guess, looking back on it now, that uh, I, my introduction was, uh, was pretty abrupt. And you said you could look through the, the cockpit and you could see the fuel gauge in pounds. And that's usually, right. And usually the pilot or the co-pilot would point to how much fuel he wanted, so that's kind of, you, you didn't look at a fuel gauge. Right, just it looked wasn't, up. right, it wasn't gallons, it was usually pounds, and, and somebody would indicate to you how much they wanted, and you could see the, see the gauges and so forth, so you'd fuel up to what he wanted, and then you'd back away, and they'd take off. Did you ever have a ground wire all with you at all times? Didn't have one at all times. Uh, we did have one occasionally. But, but you never uh, used it a lot, well, did you? Well, probably didn't use it as much as we should have. <laughs> uh, Looking back, that was, uh, you know, but uh, you did what you did. When you first got to Vietnam, <clears throat> I think you said, uh, in talking with you earlier, it was like three days after you'd gotten there, you had a little bit of a close call. Can you tell us about that? Uh, rocket hit your uh, oh oh you're, I, I thought you might when I was at uh, yeah within uh, when I first got to Vietnam we spent a couple of days at the, at the uh, what we call the charm school then I went to my unit and about three days into that uh, we were actually sitting in the hooch uh, the hooches had exactly how big they were but had sixteen little aos in them for for sleeping purposes and. But the other end of the building actually got hit with a 122 rocket. We were all actually sitting in the other end of the building, and uh, and it was it it, uh, it was very 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 loud in that small building. But but none of us got hurt, and uh, but it was uh, kind of a harrowing experience. You're right. There's a picture of you yeah. holding the souvenir of that little. Yeah, uh, we we that picture was taken the next morning, and uh, but that was uh, that was my introduction, I guess, in a way. That was the first mortar attack, rocket attack that I'd been under, and the thing actually hit the hit the building <laughs> that I was in, so. Did you have like an awakening of like, oh my God, somebody might be shooting at me in this country? Yeah, uh, and, and you kind of went through this, you know, what have I got myself into? Uh, or what am I doing here kind of thing? Um, and and I, think, I think we all went through some of that as, as our year went along. And, uh, and the longer you were there, I won't say you got used to it because you didn't. Uh, I don't think I was ever unafraid, but you kind of got used to the fact that you were in that circumstance and you just kind of learned to live with it or kind of deal with it. You, did you just allude a minute ago to another close call? No, no. Oh, I mean, okay. there was. I, I mean, I guess there was lots of little things uh, that could have been close calls. I guess, but uh, uh, but there were other times and and. And you know we, you know I can remember uh, thinking. Uh, I, I give you a, a good example. I was actually uh, showering uh, during the middle of the day. We'd come back to Phu Bien. I'd gone over to take a shower, and while I was in the shower, 
some mortars hit, and some of the shrapnel actually came through the tin walls of the shower. And I ran out of the shower uh, as quickly as I could to a slit trench, and then out of the slit trench into a bunker. Um, and really didn't realize until I got into the bunker the only thing I had was my wash rag and my my soap, <laughs> uh, which I still had retained possession of. Um, and and so that's a close call, I guess. You yeah. Know, right? But but that was a little fr and it really wasn't so much scary at the time. I was just trying to get to that bunker, and it wasn't until after it was all over with we kind of looked back and laughed about it. You know, it was all over with at that point. But uh, but there was. Little times like that, I guess. There was a few few moments like that. that was if funny. you could, could looking you, back on it, if you could, could you give the people a sense of 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 kind of your living quarters, your how, your facilities where you lived, and and kind of what they looked like. And you said AO, that's area of operation. Yeah, yeah we called it an AO. It was uh, the building. Uh, I probably about thirty, maybe forty, fifty feet long, but it, it had a little lane down the middle, and on either side we had little rooms if you want to call it that but the room the walls didn't go all the way to the ceiling and we had two beds in each AO and so there were um, 16 beds in a in a hooch and um, the the outside of the walls were wooden and we had sandbags built up about five feet on the outside and uh, so where your bed was everybody had their beds against the outside wall so your bed was actually literally next to a wall of sandbags no sandbags on the roof, and uh, so generally, if you came under attack, you know the safest place to be would be to go under your bed and roll all the way up against the wall because you're literally up against the sandbag. And the shower facility. Uh, that, shower that, facilities didn't have any sandbags around them; they were just tin, and uh, tin walls, tin roofs. So. Uh, Shrapnel will come through that tin pretty quick. And it wasn't like a shower facility that you have at your oh, house. Oh, no, 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 no. It's a very large room and cold water and uh, this concrete floor, and that was it. And um, and so uh, you, you you actually got water out of a barrel, 55-gallon drum on the roof. Gravity-fed. So, Gravity-fed, that's right. So you turn it on, get soaked up, turn it on, wash off. You were you showering in the in the middle of the day trying to get a little heat out of that water in that fifty five gallon drum? <laughs> well, it was a it was a shower of opportunity. We had uh, I had been out in the field. And we just came in that day, so I decided I'd run over and get a shower during the day when I could when it wasn't crowded. But but anyway. And uh, in our first show, you mentioned the locals. Um, you befriended some of them, and you actually had some kids that would come by. Yeah. And <clears throat> We had uh, we had quite a few when I was in the field at Fook Bend, Loch Nan, all of those. There were villages near, so they would come up all the time. We talked to them, and especially the younger, the kids in particular. Uh, but even at the base camps at Fook Bend, a lot of people worked inside the compound. So we had uh, people, hooch maids, people, women who, who cleaned the hooches, and, and uh, we had uh, people that, um, um, like a barber, every battalion had its own barber, and the barber was Vietnamese. So, so we saw a lot of the locals, but uh, you know, didn't have a lot of interaction with them, but some. And you were communicating, of course, this is before email, and this is before instant messaging, and this is before cell phones. So you're you're communicating with home with letters. That's right, and uh, get a letter every two or three days or whatever. Did you have time to write a whole lot of letters? Yeah, I mean, I wrote some. I, I don't remember how many. Don't remember, uh, but I I managed to get letters out every week. You know, to different people. 
And that was your only connection. Mm -hmm. you, no calls, home, no, calls, no instant home. messaging, no yeah. emails. It's not anything like it is now. No. I remember when my son was in Iraq, I could talk to him on instant messaging in every my day. office. Yeah. Every uh, if he was if yeah. he happened yeah. to be yeah. on, but but uh, the folks at home couldn't communicate with you right, like that. Not very well. Manly, we're out of time for this show, but we're gonna we're gonna bring Manly back for an unprecedented third show because <laughs> this story is so fascinating and so interesting. So tune again next week for the third episode of this show of Local Heroes with Manly Barton. Museum in Gauthier, we interview veterans of the military about their experiences abroad. We'll air these stories unedited and unchanged. These heroes were there on the front lines and lived through unspeakable horrors to tell us their story. And now we sit down with a true hero. Hello and welcome to Local Heroes here on WKFK-TV7, coming to you from the GI Museum in Gautier, Mississippi. This is the third show with someone I consider a very, very close friend. That's Mr. Manley Barton, our District 1 Supervisor and our President of the Board of Supervisors for Jackson County. In the first two shows, we've talked about his Vietnam uh, service. But Manley, as any GI knows that's overseas... There's a real special time of any year, and that's Christmas time. Could you tell us about your Christmas in Vietnam in 1970? 1969. Well, I've, I've told people in the past, I, I, I said if anybody ever asked me when was, you know, could I pick a day or a time that, that I was the loneliest maybe in my life, and I can always, I can always point to uh, Christmas Eve of 69. We had a I was at uh, Special Forces Camp in, at, at Loch Ninn, and we started the evening with a little Christmas dinner. There was eight or nine Americans there. Uh, the, Remember what you had? I really don't. Uh, it was some kind of turkey oh, okay. uh, uh, breast of, you know, GI turkey breast, uh, and, uh, but had a pretty good meal. And uh, we sat around and talked a little bit in this underground uh, kind of bunker thing they had there inside the Special Forces camp. And then the night kind of wore on, and uh, it got uh, to be 10, 10, 30, 11 o'clock. I don't know exactly what time it was. And everybody kind of drifted away from where the little entertainment area was downstairs. And I walked outside and walked down to one of the bunkers and uh, just kind of sat up there and thought about Christmas and family and... Uh, pretty much wallowed in self-pity that I was in Vietnam and everybody else was home opening presents and uh, visiting with family and so forth. And that, and that was probably, you know, probably the low point uh, of that whole year because I, you know, here I was kind of by myself in a way. Uh, 
I knew kind of what my family was experiencing at home. And and Christmas was very, very special at our house. And and so um, not being a part of that that year was uh, was uh, uh, was kind of it kind of hurt, you know, to to not be there. And and um, but but you know I I sat out there for a little while and felt sorry for myself and but eventually went to bed I guess and got up the next day and went on but uh, but that was a pretty low point that night it really was and and uh, uh, but the next day the uh, was Christmas Day and we actually had several people come in that day and brought us a few things including uh, uh, the USO girls came in and uh, uh, the donut dollies and how'd they arrive they they arrived in a in a caribou uh, twin-engine cargo plane that was painted up to look like Santa Claus, and they lowered the ramp on the back. It has a ho 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 on the ramp, and they set out a a, a little cardboard or temporary uh, bar type thing that kind of looked like brick, and uh, had cookies and donuts and cake and different things uh, for the guys. And I guess they were flying into all the small bases like that, where people couldn't get back to a big base for Christmas. And uh, and so they was, they were, I forget how many of us that were there. There were seven or eight of us, maybe nine of us there, Americans at that, at that uh, particular place. But it was a special forces camp. And uh, but that was an interesting day. Interesting Christmas. Yes, yeah, I bet it was. Um, Cambodia. You had been wounded. You were recuperating. You were uh, on convalescence. And it was somewhere around the end of April, 1st of May. I was wounded on the 28th of March and had kind of several weeks to kind of recuperate and, and uh, get my wounds healed and so forth. And about the, I guess, the, the middle of April, they, uh, I decided to go ahead and take my R&R since I was already uh, kind of on light duty and, and uh, did so, and, and when I came back our, off our bar and r was on April the 28th, and that was in 1970, and when I got in, I was told to, that they wanted to see me at battalion headquarters, and so I went down to battalion, and they told me then that, uh, that I needed to get enough stuff together to uh, feed us, several of us, for about 30 days and get all the equipment we needed to refuel with and get it all together. And the next day we were flown out to Loch Ninh. That would be on the 29th. And on May the 1st was when uh, President Nixon sent the troops into Cambodia. And Loch Ninh was the jumping off point. So those last two days we were there, uh, Thousands of helicopters came in and out of there bringing supplies and troops and kind of building up for those two days. And the, the, the last night of the month before they kicked off the next morning, um, you know, there was seven or 8,000 infantry troops sleeping on both sides of the runway. And, uh, and then that morning, <coughs> uh, literally from one end of that runway to the other was, uh, was helicopters lined up from one end to the other, waiting on 6 a.m. Uh, when they wound them up and loaded them up, and first load took off, and they were gone for 45 minutes, and 
they came back and the second load loaded up and they left and, and then we we were in the third load the group I was with and uh, we waited and they came back and we loaded on those helicopters and and that was an interesting ride because I you know I was in Vietnam and kind of used to being there and uh, didn't really know what we were fixing to get into in Cambodia uh, but it ended up going to uh, a place called LZ David uh, in a very 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 open uh, area uh, kind of like uh, somebody going out in the middle of a four or five hundred acre cow pasture and building a LZ right in the middle of it. There was no trees. There were, I mean, trees were there, but they were way off. And and it was actually kind of it was beautiful country, and it was kind of rolling hills, and you had all this what looked like pasture, uh, and it was very different, uh, even though it was only 30, 45 minutes away. Um, uh, but 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 obviously Cambodia had a lot of jungle and all, just like Vietnam did. But this particular area was 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 not. It was uh, very open and very. Uh, like I say, it was almost like pasture uh, where we were. And uh, but I spent a, almost a month there, and uh, came back in the latter part of uh, May back to to uh, Loch Ninh. And you were it, when you were there for thirty days. You were, you it was basically a POL point. You right. you were refueling helicopters with the Blivets and right. And it was yourself and usually sometimes it was just me. Uh, uh, we actually had a couple of LZs in Cambodia, and we were. We had a presence at each one, so sometimes it was just me. Maybe sometimes it was me and maybe one other person. But it was a small uh, emergency type refueling. We didn't keep a lot of fuel there, and uh, and so it was. Uh, we we did a lot of refueling, but they supplied us it with three and four blivets at a time. We never had a lot of fuel there at any one time. And you were there by yourself. Sometimes. Oh no 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 not here. This was an LZ, and no. and uh, they were couple of hundred infantry troops there all the time and it was a fire support base also so there was the artillery folks there on this big LZ in Cambodia this is in Cambodia oh, okay yeah. right, right. but were, you were the only guy there that was refueling right 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 I was the only one from our unit that was there so after you come back out of Cambodia back to Loch Ninh and uh, spend probably another week or two there and then I ended up back uh, at Phuc Binh which was our base camp um, and then, but off and on throughout that, uh, the rest of my tour, I, I spent more time, you know, weeks at a time at either Loch Ninh or Duke Fong, which was the other Special Forces camp. So I spent, and, and, a, and, and, and a day or two here and a day or two there at different places, wherever they needed a refueling operation set up. And, and most of the time you're by yourself. Well, sometimes we were, with, yeah, from my unit, yes. yeah, from my unit, yeah. Amazing, a one-man operation. Well, we didn't we didn't didn't take a whole lot. We had a pump and a and a bladder, and if you had the pump and you had the fuel, you could refuel somebody. So, um, but normally we would be at uh, either a, a forward support, a fire support base, or some type of landing zone where there were infantry troops and maybe artillery people. So we weren't. We, weren't, we were by ourselves in the sense that there was nobody else from our unit there, but we did have other support troops there. But it would be a small, small place. But at times you were out there by yourself oh. with just a PRC-25 radio. That's right. Yeah, an M-16, a few right. C-rations, and right. some canteens. Yeah, a couple of times. A couple of times. Yeah, several times. Wow. <laughs> That's lonely. 
That well, but usually those times were, they were supposed to be short, you know, a couple hours, and they'd bring you in, you'd refuel somebody, and then they'd pick you up. And, uh, but it was, but they, they got a little fun at times. And your tour is winding down now. Uh, July, you left in August of uh, 70? Left in August of 70. Uh, came home for 30 days, basically, and then finished up my tour at Fort Hood, Texas. I spent six months uh, at Fort Hood and finished up there and came home in uh, the latter part of February. Uh, got out, I guess it was the last day of February in, uh, in uh, 1970. When you, when you went to Fort Hood, what were you doing at Fort Hood? Uh, <clears throat> I was actually uh, the training uh, NCO uh, for a training battalion there are a training, yeah, a training battalion in uh, at, at Fort Hood. I want to get this this on the show. When you got to Vietnam, you was an e, you were an E three. E three, right. But when you left Vietnam, you were a E five. E five, staff sergeant. Pretty amazing that you were promoted that quickly. But as anybody knows, if you want to get promoted, you'd be in combat, and that's that's the way to do it. But also, you must have been doing something right, Manly, because you got the Army Commendation Medal and the Bronze Star for, for the things that you were doing. We're going to have to take a short break here. Don't go away. We're going to come back with more local heroes here on WKFK TV 7. Welcome back to Local Heroes here on WKFK TV 7. We've been talking to Mr. Manley Barton about his service in Vietnam. Manley, before we went to the break, we had wound your service down, basically. You were finishing up in Vietnam. It's August 1970. You get on a plane in Vietnam, and you go toward home. Can you tell us about that? Well, uh, you know, just leaving... Vietnam was a little traumatic, I guess, in a way, because, you know, for a year, I checked off every day on a calendar. Can't wait till that day gets here when I can come home. And then when the day got there, uh, you know, there's a big part of me didn't want to leave because I'd made a lot of, I was leaving a lot of my very, very, very best friends there. And um, so that kind of started the trip home wasn't that I didn't want to come home, wasn't that I didn't want to come see my family and so forth, but I was leaving some pretty important people. Um, and I came home. I, I, I had orders to report to uh, Fort Hood, Texas for my last six months, uh, but I had 30 days leave to come home to Bankley, Mississippi. And so from the time I got on the plane in Vietnam till the time I rolled into downtown Bankley was about probably 48 hours. So it was a pretty quick turnaround considering that probably, you know, uh, three or four or five days before that, I'd been flying in and out of some small fire support base in Vietnam, and less than a week later, I'm in downtown Bankley with my friends. So that was, uh, that was a pretty dramatic uh, uh, or drastic change of, of environment. And, um, and I'm not sure that, you know, looking back on it in particular, I'm not sure that I handled it very well. Um, uh, I, I, I was, when I got home, uh, you know, I had lived and breathed and, you know, that, that Vietnam experience, I guess, every day for a year. And then all of a sudden I ended up 
at home and um, Vietnam was not the, the top of the discussion. You know, it was, uh, most people were more interested in uh, uh, what they were going to do this weekend than they were what was going on in Vietnam today. And, and, uh, and that hurt a little bit, I think. I mean, especially looking back on it. I, I struggle with that some, and, and the fact that um, it, was, it was kind of important to me, and, and it didn't seem to be important to them. And, and I don't know, looking back on it, I don't know that they didn't think it was important. It just, it, it, that was not the center of their life. And, uh, and so that was, uh, that was something that, that took a little getting used to, and I didn't get used to it very well. And uh, so the 30 days I was home, and then I went to Fort Hood, um, I struggled with that a little bit. And, and then after I got out of the service and came home, I, I think I continued to struggle with that, as, and I think a lot of other veterans did too. Vietnam was not something people wanted to talk about. It wasn't, a, it wasn't, uh, uh, wasn't any parades as such. Not that I don't think we really wanted a parade as such, but, but it was not something people wanted to talk about. And, and so I think most veterans, and, and, and me included, kind of pushed those uh, memories and, and things. It was something that had happened to us, but it wasn't something that we talked a great deal about because it just didn't get brought up a whole lot. People didn't want to talk about it. So it was, um, and, I, and I dealt with that. As, I guess everybody dealt with it in their own ways, but, uh, you know, for probably 20 years, uh, um, I just, it just, it just wasn't an issue because we didn't make it an issue. It just, we just didn't talk about it and, and, um, you know, I didn't, I, you know, I was lucky in a way maybe. I, I, I never had any nightmares. I didn't, I, I mean, I didn't really struggle with a lot of that. Um, I had times when I was restless. And, and I had a hard time sleeping if I'd watch a movie or if I'd read a book or something. My wife would, she'd tell me, you don't need to watch that movie, you know, you don't need to read that book. And, and she was right in a sense because then I would, I would struggle with that for a week or two sometimes. And, and, and then it would, and I'd get over it and I'd go on and everything would be okay. But, um, but, but it was something that I just really kind of avoided. I mean, I just, we just didn't. We didn't talk about it a whole lot, and uh, and that you know that went on for a long time, probably twenty years. Did you get to talk to your grandfather about any of that? When I first came home from Vietnam, my grandfather was uh, in his early eighties at the time. Uh, he had actually served in World War One, and one of the more unique things, and I've talked about this at, at some things that I've done. I talk about Veterans Day was very important to him because when we think about Veterans Day or Armistice Day, think about the 11th hour, the 11th day, the 11th month type of thing. But but my grandfather always thought of it as a moment in time because he remembered when everything got quiet. He remembered the 11th hour. He remembered that 11th hour. He was there. He was in the trenches when the war ended. And he was one of those people that once the war ended, after a little while, climbed up out of the foxholes and actually walked across the middle and visited with the Germans. And they swapped guns and pistols and things like that. My grandfather actually brought home a, uh, a pistol that a German officer gave him Amazing. that morning. And so, 
So he and I talked probably more after I came back from Vietnam than we did before. And I, especially looking back on it, my grandfather died uh, about a year or two after I came home. But in that time period, he and I talked several times. And, and I, I look back on it, and he talked to me about things um, during that period of time that he never talked to me about before I went to Vietnam. And I knew he'd been in World War One, and I had... I knew some things. But after I came back, it was almost as though now maybe he and I had something in common. And he would talk about things with me then, I think, that before he didn't talk about. And, and, and I, I equate that to perhaps the fact that I had been in maybe in war or, or whatever, and he maybe felt some connection there that maybe wasn't there before. I, I, I don't I don't know, but but he did talk about things that he didn't talk about before, and uh, but um, but he was a good guy. Yeah, your whole family's full of good guys, manly. Um, the wall in Washington. Did you ever make it there? Yeah, I did. Uh, I, when you know when they started designing it and building it and everything, I. I kept up with it some, and and when it was built, I remember when they had the grand opening, so to speak, and a lot of people were there. I and I guess there was a part of me wanted to want to go to it, um, but I just had kind of told myself that I really didn't want to go. I mean, I really didn't need to go, and and part of me was I, I think not wanting to go for some of the same reasons that I didn't want to read a book about Vietnam or I didn't want to see a movie about Vietnam. I just didn't know how that was going to uh, play with my emotions and other things that I thought might come into play. Um, but early in 1990, 1991 time frame, I had a real good friend who, he and I were good friends in Vietnam, and he had been to the wall and he called me and, and really encouraged me over a period of time to go. And in 1991, I believe it was, my wife and I did go. And it was um, um, probably the most emotional thing I've ever done in my life. It was, um, um, it was very much like uh, that you could just, you, you were there with everybody. It was... Um, so that was a healing experience. It really you. was. I, it's it's difficult to explain, and 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 I think people who have been there uh, have experienced the similar emotions. Um, uh, but I've I've never had anything uh, affect me uh, like that first time. Now I've actually been back to the wall many times since then, and uh, and it's still emotional, and it's emotional every time I go but not like the first time. Uh, the first time was um, I've never, ever experienced that kind of emotional outpouring. And, uh, and and you see other people there, and you see people who are experiencing the same thing you are, and some for the first time. And um, so it's, uh, but it, 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 I would, um, but it is a wall that heals. I, I mean, I think that's a good way to describe it. And, it's uh, it it really 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 um, 
made a difference in, 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 in me. Yes, oh, a lot of other veterans who've been there, a lot of other people. It really helped them out a whole lot. Well, Manly, we're about to the end of the show. Is there anything special you'd like to leave our, our, our viewers with? Well, <clears throat> I think uh, just that, you know, the people that serve in our military and serve our country is, um, they're, the, they're our neighbors, our brothers, our sisters, our husbands, our wives today. Um, and we need to do whatever we can to show them that they're appreciated. Yes, sir, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And, uh, and just anything that, uh, anytime you have an opportunity to do that. Um, that uh, and I think that's important. It, I mean, I can't think of anything. I look back on my time, and, um, and I think that was one of the things that the Vietnam veterans in particular had struggled with, was that, um, that they didn't feel like they were appreciated. And uh, and I think that's changed. I think um, I think people look back, and even people who criticized the soldiers in the '60s and '70s. I think even a lot of those people have now said, "Well, you know, they they were they were really criticizing the wrong people." And um, so, uh, but at the time, it hurt, and it took a lot of people a long time to get over some of that hurt. Well, I'd like to say now that you and your entire family are probably some of the best people I've ever known. And the Vietnam veteran is probably one of the most unappreciated and misunderstood veterans out there. And I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, but I want to say thank you very much, Manly Barton. I appreciate it. That'll do it for this episode of Local Heroes. Please join us again next week for another episode here on WKFK. TV7.